And one of our cycling trips is to the south end of those river parks is MLK Riverside Park, which for Memphians is historic because it was the first place that Blacks could use a public park. And that was owned by the city. And so that is so significant. It's a beautiful park that overlooks water, but it's underutilized. Hi, everyone. This is John Zimmerman, founder of the Active Towns Initiative and your humble host here on the Active Towns Podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity. So wonderful to have you along for the ride. Today is Friday, June 19th, 2020. Juneteenth, also known as Freedom Day or Emancipation Day. It's a holiday celebrating the liberation of those who had been held as slaves in the United States. Originally a Texas state holiday, it's now celebrated annually on the 19th of June throughout the United States with varying levels of recognition, but it deserves to be an official national holiday. On this date, it is indeed quite fitting and my distinct honor to be able to share with you this episode with Roshan Austin, Executive Director of The Works Incorporated, a nonprofit community development corporation serving South Memphis, helping the community to rebuild, restore, and renew. Enjoy. I am absolutely delighted to have online with me here today from South Memphis, Roshan Austin. Roshan, so wonderful to have you. Thank you. Tell us a little more about the works and, and the nitty gritty of the types of projects that you are involved with there in Memphis. The Works is a community development corporation that was founded in 1998. Uh, and at, its, at the time of its founding uh, by now an affiliated entity, the St. Andrew African Methodist Episcopal Church, our neighbor, uh, the pastor of that church founded the works and was its first executive director mostly to address housing needs. And so at the time the work started, it did single family detached development for low income homeowners. But very quickly into the existence of the organization, we moved into multifamily development for extremely low and very low income uh, households and those definitions by HUD. So people that are living 50, 60% or 30% below the median are what we refer to as extremely low and very low. And so moved there and then really wanted to address more comprehensive needs of families. And so we also are the sponsor of Tennessee's actually first independent charter school, elementary school. It's K through five. It rents space from St. Andrew, which is right across the street. And so it's been in existence as long as the charter uh, laws have been passed in Tennessee. And we have no intentions of expanding beyond that school in terms of our sponsorship. It has its own board. We just have a presence and we choose that members of that, or we approve the members of that board and have some oversight as sponsor. So we went about doing everything housing related for like 10 years. So outside of the school, we did single family, we did rental. We even had a mortgage brokerage in 2006 or so. It was in partnership with Regents Bank, and during the crisis, it went over to Regents full-time. So they kind of bought that interest and the staff person that went with it. 
during the housing crisis. But we didn't totally forget about that. So at our 10th year anniversary, we went through a very extensive planning process with our neighbors. And so a thousand unique residents participated in what we call the South Memphis Revitalization Action Plan. From that plan, nine priorities emerged and there were themes. And so the first implementation out of that plan was the South Memphis Farmers Market. And so it got us in the food space. Uh, part of beyond that outdoor market, which was seasonal, the neighborhood had these charrettes were architects and they drew this idea of a store and a kitchen. And so that has come to be. And the works really considers ourselves stewards of that plan. We don't own it. It's owned by residents and we update it. So those residents may have passed away or moved on. And there are other people here now that didn't participate who would like to participate. And so we keep re-engaging them around those same priorities or new priorities if they tell their, us there are new priorities. And so our bread and butter is still in the housing field. So we do a lot of single family detached for both rental and home ownership. We're doing a pretty massive multifamily development, about a 17 million tax credit property. And we operate a green grocer. We do free cooking education using the Cooking Matters curriculum. And we activated a space that, of this vacant land next door to our apartments in South Memphis. And we just said, South Memphis, move your bodies because we have such high health disparities in uh, South Memphis. We have the most underwater mortgages. We have a high poverty rate. And so we knew that we not only needed to address food and how people access fresh produce and healthier food, we needed to talk about their physicality. And so, of course, we... Over the last few years, we've been a partner with The Big Jump, and so we are doing cycling. We have a bike fleet. Uh, and that activation of that land led to the, the development of a pocket park. The residents started drawing what they wanted to see. We put that together, got some landscape architects, and went to the state for a, our first grant related to that park, and it is now under construction, and it's the vision of the people that live around us. That's fantastic. Now, the store that you mentioned, was that the store that I visited uh, during the Explore Bike Share rollout? That's right. So it's the grocer at the South Memphis Farmer's Market. It's a six-day-a-week, year-round green grocer. Fantastic. And that certainly addresses one of the critical needs when you look at uh, the challenges that South Memphis faces, as well as many other cities uh, around the nation in terms of having a food desert. That's right. Yeah. So we are heavily in the food space, not only with our grocer, but we put in a little over a million dollars in an independent grocery store, which is a full service grocery store that is closest to our neighbors in terms of them being able to get everything that they need. And so we've given him a very low interest loans to operate two stores. Right. Right. Yeah. That's that's so fantastic. And Talk to a little bit of how the COVID-19 pandemic has sort of influenced, because obviously those stores are, are critical infrastructure for supporting the community. That's right. And so I mentioned that our community has uh, great health disparities. We also have an aging population. And so many of our residents, uh, more than half of our residents are 60 or older. And so 
one of the ways we wanted to address that is to keep our neighbors safe because we're always concerned about their health and well-being. We didn't want them to go out to the stores. And a lot of them didn't have the ability. They didn't have the funding to go to the grocery stores or transportation is a huge issue. We don't have, you know, more than one third of our residents don't have transportation. They're sick and they're older. So how do we help them? So some of our, with some of our partners, including that grocer who supplies us for our grocer, we were able to purchase on a weekly basis. So for the last 13 weeks, we have provided three weeks worth of grocery to seniors. So over 400 seniors who live in our zip code area have received a door-to-door delivery. And so they don't have to come to us. We get out and we put it in our trucks and we take it to them. And it's a combination of produce and dairy and dry goods, canned goods, so that they can feed themselves because there's a pretty, I say it's an epidemic of hunger among seniors and they don't always tell us. We talk about children in hunger, but often seniors are caring for their grandchildren. And so they're both hungry, both the children and the seniors. And so we're trying to address the need for seniors. Right. Yeah, no, that's such a good point. As I recall, there's also a a fabulous community garden uh, establishment not far from there too, right? There is. So there's the Greenleaf Learning Farm. It's a organic, USDA organic farm that's operated by one of our partners, Knowledge Quest. And they're actually one of our, they're the one farmer that has been with us for all 11 seasons of our outdoor farmer's market. And so they're about, they're not even a mile away from us. And so, of course, we partner with Knowledge Quest on both. We support their efforts with grants, but they've also partnered with us on a state grant with the Department of Health to help them by wayfinding signage and also two cargo bikes and so that they can deliver their produce throughout the neighborhood with those cargo bikes. I love that. That's so cool. That's that's certainly wonderful. And the other thing that I remember and and really is so salient in my mind is that fabulous uh, evening bike ride that we did, the South Memphis uh, glide ride. Please tell me that that's still going on. We've had to pause it during the pandemic, depending on what phase the city is in. Of course, it gets so hot in Memphis, we didn't do it in the middle of the summer anyway. So it was really, it was supposed, it was set to start in April uh, and go on a few weeks. And then we may be able to pick it back up in the fall because we did the Workstead purchase. We have about 25 bikes in our fleet, but we also can use Explore Bike Share bikes if we get a bigger crowd, because we've had crowds up to 70, many of whom bring their own bicycles. But yeah, we have not forgotten about the glide ride. It's just with the pandemic, it has paused us because of the use of the bicycles. Yeah. I proudly wear my South Memphis glide ride t-shirt uh, at least once per week around my neighborhood here in, in Austin. So it's it holds a very special place in my heart. I'm going to reflect some observations that I had about that ride, which were just incredibly special to me. And that was the smiles on the kids' faces, the teens as well as the preteens, but also the number of families that were out on their front porches cheering us along. Speak a little bit to the powerful impact that bringing that type of movement and activity has has on that neighborhood. 
You know, you know, sometimes I, I hear critics talk about placing uh, like bicycle lanes or cycling in uh, low income, distressed or disinvested neighborhoods. And that bike ride kind of proves those critics wrong because every bike ride, even the one outside of the one you were on with us, we get cheers. It's like if they had confetti, they'd probably be throwing confetti at us. It's like a parade. They're so excited that someone feels that they're worthy enough to have the amenities that you find in more affluent areas of town. And that we're so invested, not in just in the neighborhood, we're invested in these people. And so we get, you know, they, they're always like, Can, is that for us? I'm like, this is for you. So if you would like to join us on our ride, here's the time. We got a bike for you. You don't have to bring anything. We'll give you snacks. We have a store. You know, you need a banana or some, not chips. We're not going to encourage that, but some kind of uh, granola bar to encourage, I mean, uh, help you uh, have fuel to ride. And so we did the teen uh, ambassador program and right away, our next ambassadors were adults, neighborhood leaders. You know, whether they were chosen by a group of people or they identified themselves as a neighborhood leader. And so it was the same kind of feeling. You had some older, you know, people in their 70s who hadn't ridden a bike in 40 years. And so, you know, it's, it's a, about neighborhood pride that they have ownership of this activity. They own it, but they also are able to see access in their neighborhood from a different vantage point. And they get to call those things access where other people will call them. Uh, something negative. Uh, but it also, uh, for me, psychologically, uh, if you're a 70 year old person that's lived in a distressed neighborhood your entire life and everything everybody says about you is bad and everything that you see around you seems bad from someone else's vantage point, it, it really kind of addresses the trauma because who cannot smile when they're riding a bike for, for leisure? And so, we have to have bright spots in places where people are already traumatized. There's so many things systemically that are impacting them negative. And I always tell my staff, when people come here, regardless of what's going on with me personally, I have to address them like I'd like you know, to be addressed. Because I don't know if they've been to DHS or D- DCS's on them or they lost their job, whatever is happening in their life, they could get a smile from me. And even if I have to say no, it still can be warm. And I'm not just gonna say no, because they've heard 10 no's that same day. So how can we do a warm transfer if we can? Or, hey, I can't really help you today, but why don't we just go out and walk or ride or you know cycle throughout the neighborhood and find ways to help out other people because it always makes you feel better if you're helping someone else. Yeah, excellent point. And one of the things that I observed about that glide ride is that because all of us, the majority of us who are out on that ride, were dressed just in our normal clothes and we're just, it, in other words, we didn't look sporty. We were just there to go out for a cruise. And that that helped that connection with the people in the community. And I know that we picked up a couple of people who are like, oh, what's this? And they tagged on. And then other people, to your point, were, were asking, what, what, what is this? Can we join? And we're like, oh, yes, definitely join. 
So that that aspect of just getting out there as a normal person, just a person on a bike versus, quote unquote, a cyclist, somebody who's you know decked out on a racing bike in Lycra and all that. Such a such a wonderful uh, differentiation and, and made it much more accessible. That's right. You know, I, I make a, a point, although I can get the Lycra. I, I, because it's, it's, it's about access again, you know, it costs money to cycle can be cycling can be expensive. And so they already don't have a, a lot of resources. So they're not going to choose to buy cycling gear. Uh, and so we, I'm always making a point, Hey, I have on a skirt. I have on sensible shoes. Cause I don't always wear sensible shoes. I wear high, very high heels mostly, <laughs> but I'll wear my sensible shoes, a skirt, and so let's eliminate some of the barriers that people feel uh, when they think about cycling. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. So you mentioned earlier about, you know, specifically, I think you mentioned some of the, the elderly who may not have been on a bike or, or maybe don't even know how to ride a bike. That brings uh, back a story of your own personal life and your own personal story with uh uh, brushing up on your bicycling skills. Why don't you tell that story and how that came about? I got a call. What was that in 2015? I think. Oh, for I don't know, 15 or 14, from our former uh, bicycle pedestrian manager at our at the city of Memphis, and said, "Hey, the local foundations are helping us sponsor." a trip, uh, a cycling tour with People for Bikes uh, to the Netherlands. And they would like for you to go. And my response to him was, hey, Kyle, I don't ride a bike. They, they got the wrong person. I've never ridden a bike in my life. And he's like, well, I'm not going to tote you around on a tandem. And so you better learn. <laughs> so I had a couple of months in between my really busy schedule to figure out how do I learn how to ride a bike? And so one of the other participants who was leading a bicycle co-op, uh, Sylvia, said, oh, I'll teach you. And I was like, so I don't have a lot of time, Sylvia. We're going to have to do this. It's going to have to be really, really quick uh, for me to learn how to ride a bike and go to like bike world in the Netherlands. Uh, so one Sunday afternoon, and I was, I was 44 years old, and I had not ridden a bike. And there were a lot of reasons I had not ridden a bike. You know, I grew up holding this Pentecostal in the South. You know, we couldn't skip, chew gum, or cycle. So, or a lot, of, and a lot of other things we could not do. And so, and I didn't really think about it. It's like, it was, I didn't think about why cycling was important for not just me, but my neighbors in the neighborhoods where I work. Uh, and so I went to her co-op on one Sunday afternoon and I said, I, I got like I got like 15 minutes. <laughs> Let's get this done. I got on a bike and, you know, like you do a five-year-old, probably you're holding a month on the bike and you start off with training rules. I didn't really have time for that. You know, I had, we had a trip in a month and I needed to learn. So I'm like, I'm just going to do it. And so we were in a parking lot that was pretty empty of the church and I just took off. And the next thing I know, Sylvia's like, now I'm going to ride the neighborhood. I'm like, well, Heck, I just learned at 44, I might as well go ahead and ride through the streets, too. And so we took a ride throughout the Cooper Young neighborhood, which is pretty cycling friendly, if, if you think about neighborhoods, because they're used to seeing cyclists. And after that, I started going on her slow rolls throughout uh, the city. And then the next thing I know, I was in the Netherlands riding 20 miles. And 
it was it was scary because the people in the Netherlands, as nice as they are, uh, they were like, get to the right. I was too slow. And so over that week, I picked up. I picked up the pace because I needed to keep up. And I my competitive side came out like I got to keep up with these people. They're not going to put me over to the right. <laughs> so I and I saw people there riding with cellos, children with a cello on a bike or a woman in a short skirt and high heels. And I was like, I love this. They have on short skirts and high heels and I can dress the way I want to dress and still cycle for me, not just for exercise, but for leisure or for going to work. And so we met some immigrants from, I think, Northeast or Northwest Amsterdam. And it all hit me why cycling was so important for neighborhoods where we've seen disinvestment because many of them did not know how to ride bikes before because they didn't, bicycles represented, they were stigmatized because if you had gained some sense of wealth, you had an automobile in their countries where they were from. And that was the same thing in distressed neighborhoods. The bicycles, what we had, or we were pedestrians before, now we want to move on up and get what other people have access to. And so it hit me, though. It's like a third of our residents don't own automobiles. We're a 15-minute cycling trip to the downtown center of Memphis. We are a few miles away from so many things, but we're a world away via our public transit system. It may take an hour and a half to get somewhere. And if I cycle, it takes me 15 minutes. <laughs> so... Hi, everyone. Please pardon this very brief uh, intermission and pause in the action with my conversation with Roshan Austin. I just want to take an opportunity to thank all of the donors who have contributed to the Active Towns Initiative and helping me keep this content rolling along, as well as the momentum about talking about a culture of activity within our communities. I really do appreciate the support. For those of you out there who are in a position to make a contribution, please click on the links in the show notes or go out to the Active Towns website. That's activetowns.org and click on the donate button. Also, if you haven't yet subscribed to the Active Towns podcast on the listening platform of your choice, please do that. It really does help and share it with a friend too. Okay, that's it for this quick break. Let's get back to my conversation with Roshan Austin. When you look back at that time, what are some of the lasting images or the lasting learnings that over the years have resonated uh, for you on the ground uh, there? You mentioned a couple of them, but any additional things that just kind of, you know, you think back to that time and you're like, oh, wow, you know, this is still quite relevant right here, right now, today. So in particular, probably now more than ever because of what the world is experiencing with the pandemic. But we, you know, we went to cycle near some uh, areas in particular. I think that was in Amsterdam because we went to a couple of cities. It was a, a government development. I don't know what they call their public housing, but their version of public housing. And so it, it, although we were talking about cycling, it still resonates back with me about how we build our spaces. 
And are we building for people or profits, you know, for that matter? And and so as I look at future development, we're picking up some vacant land. We're real secretive about it because it's in the middle of the city and it's like eight acres and we don't want anyone else to get it. (laughs) So how do I build this subdivision where it works for people not only today, uh, but into the future? And in all kinds of people, you know, so it's not I don't want to build Pleasantville suburb because it's not it's in the center of a city. We don't want it to be dominated by cars. And then, you know, what are cars doing? You know, we're having these autonomous vehicles. And I, you know, I remember going to Madison to the Places for Bikes conference and GM was on the stage. So I'm like, even the car companies are adjusting And so what is the wave of the future in regards to how we navigate spaces? So we need to build uh, for the future. Uh, And that's funny because I used to uh, work with a program called Building for the Future. But and so it, it, it just looking at how they dealt with their public housing and how they created those little this little side streets. And I can't remember what they were called, but they were not for cars. They were pedestrians and cycle. And so, you know, you got a street that has a no cars allowed. So why don't we have those in the the U.S. and the auto industry has dominated uh, how we build our houses, which makes zero sense. So it dominates other industries. And so we want we're not anti auto industry. We're pro all other things that make places better places to live and work and play. Yeah, no, that's so well said. And and I think you, you mentioned it earlier. It's about creating people-oriented places. It's a place where, uh, you know, people who are outside of a cocoon of a multi-thousand dollar automobile can feel welcome and feel safe. And so that's so important. And yeah, you've mentioned the different types of streets and infrastructure that you, you come across in Europe and in the Netherlands in particular. Some of them are the Woonerfs, which are the shared streets where uh, it's pedestrian priority and then people on bikes and then motor vehicles are allowed, but only as guests and they have to, to proceed with caution driving typically around five to 10, maybe 15 miles per hour. And then, of course, the other street that we saw lots of over there in the Netherlands were what they call the Fietstraats which are bicycle priority streets where the, again, the automobile is allowed, uh, but they must stay behind and proceed with caution and patience. And so that's there. And then of course, as you mentioned, there were a few uh, pedestrian priority and no cars allowed. And in some cases, no bikes allowed uh, in those truly pedestrianized areas. So those Those are all like little subtleties of saying that, hey, these are people oriented places and cars may or may not be allowed. But if they are allowed, please proceed with caution, you know, with care, move slowly, which brings us back around to some of our normal streets that we see and that I saw during the South Memphis glide ride. Uh, many of those streets had zero infrastructure for pedestrians. And so those streets are de facto shared streets, Woonerfs, if you will. 
And so that's what's so wonderful about being able to occupy those spaces with a group ride and the, I don't want to call it a novelty, but it really brought the attention up of the neighbors. And one of the reasons probably why they were applauding us is because it was, it was so cool, like you mentioned. Uh, so talk a little bit about that, because that's that's an interesting aspect of street calming, of people taking, you know, getting back out on those streets and occupying them with smiles and music and having a good old time. And having uh, outings in the front yard. We had, you know, on, on uh, our weeks of the ride, we had this one family. Every time we passed, they were out. I don't know if they were a family or a group of friends. But I was like, how do I get involved in that group? Because every time we pass their house, they're barbecuing <laughs> in the yard. Every, it was like, we've been here 10 weeks and they're barbecuing every week uh, on the same day. And so I mean, that is very important. We, we, we cannot build or do anything absent our, and not think about the social, emotional well-being of those that we serve because people are just not, you know, our bodies are made up of a lot of different components. And I always talk about neighborhoods in that way. When I do some panels and I used to teach this class as a visiting um, lecturer, faith and community development. And I went to a tradition that is not my own, uh, the Jewish tradition. And in the Torah, it talks about where the teacher can live. And, and there were some requirements that needed to be in that community for the teacher to be present. And so it's things like bloodletting, a bloodletter, a butcher baker, but we get the concept. And so there needs to be access to community space. There needs to be a temple, a place where children learn. There needs to be plumbing. There needs to be. And so that I think about the public infrastructure like sewer and and there needs to be uh, the butcher and the baker. So, you know, food outlets. And so but it also it, it just didn't speak to the physical body it spoke about the spiritual body and so when I think social emotional I think about our spiritual our mind uh, it even takes me back to the Greek philosophers and thinking about this connection of mind and body and so most of the things that we do at the works we talk about the the spirit soul and body and so I mean that's probably because we were founded by a minister and in the Christian tradition our name the works is from the Bible in the book of James. And even our motto is from Isaiah about restoring, rebuilding, and renewing. So we I always tag everything, restore, rebuild, renew, because we will restore the ancient ruins. And it's from Isaiah in the 61st chapter. And we not only would restore those buildings and renew and rebuild, that means people too. And so it's very important. And we know that what a smile does versus a frown. So a smile, what it does to my physical well-being is if I'm frowning, you know, I, you know, it takes so many muscles, more muscles to do that than it is for me to smile. And if I'm smiling, it makes me, you know, I'm happy. My body responds, maybe my blood pressure is lower and it makes me want to do other things. And so we get that same spirit from our seniors. We have a senior walking group. And so and some of them are on walkers when they start and we see their progress over the time because they're socially interacting with one another. 
they're out walking. So they're physically starting to, they're maybe stooped. They start to stand up more. They're out of their houses. They're in the sun and they're smiling. And then, you know, we always throw in a little music with everything we do. And so then now they're dancing. <laughs> so that's important that we don't just think about building places, but we build people uh, who can have great lives or better quality of life in those places. Yeah, that's so important is that, you know, that that whole concept of of building people oriented places keeps the people up front and foremost in mind, which means, hey, it's a safe, inviting environment. And as a herding species, we can't help but say, oh, gosh, I know I need to get my activity in. Look at them. They're having so much fun. They're smiling. So part of, you know, building an inviting environment also taps into that environment side of things, you know, what's, what's it like out there? If I remember correctly, someone was out planting trees yesterday. Is that correct? We were, we were moving trees. And so we, um, um, our conserv- uh, Shelby Farms Conservancy started some saplings for us. And so as a group of nonprofits led by one of our partners, Neighborhood Preservation Inc., um, we moved 500 trees from the conservancy to uh, urban what I think they're called urban farm, but they are a nursery that is going to uh, host our trees and help us grow them, uh, the saplings, for the next 18 months. So those 500 will grow for 18 months, which we will plant next fall because Memphis is, well, a few of us in Memphis are trying hard to uh, become the hardwood capital of the world again. We lost that title some time ago. We'd like to get it back. Uh, because what our environment, just concrete environments in cities without trees and vegetation, uh, have it really impacted us, uh, really kind of, it's trauma, you know, to not have um, shade or a place to sit and meditate and rest. And so we like to plant those trees in, uh, neighbor, in our neighborhoods and where they've been destroyed or removed. And we planted, I think, 24 trees on a vacant lot uh, as a demonstration a couple of years ago on a lot that the works on. It was at residence there at some point, but that residence was built prior to the interstate. So the interstate kind of is on top of it. So no, who wants to live on the inter- underneath the interstate? Uh, so you hear all of the cars. And I said, so that's probably not the perfect place in 2020 for a residence but it is great for trees. And so we plant, planted some native trees. They, the nursery already has um, over 100 trees that are already mature enough that we're, we'll be able to plant this fall. And so in addition to building buildings and people, we are now tree huggers. And so we are <laughs> planting trees along our, our parkway on vacant lots. We have flowers all around. So, you know, we'll have trees and flowers and a meditation garden in the park because it's not just about physical activity. Again, I keep mentioning mental because our psycho- psychologically, we, a lot of our physical ailments probably are controlled here in our mind. And so if we can get stress off of people, maybe we start reducing blood pressure and eliminate hypertension along with our teaching cooking education. So you eat better you're less stressed uh, and maybe you have less preventable diet-related and stress-related disorders. 
Um, and so, yeah, we're planting trees. And I forgot about a project. We were on a street when we were riding on Walker and it's, it was a speedway. And the, the interesting thing about Walker is that there is a that urban farm that's located right there. And they host over 200 children a day because they do after school program and a lot of youth programming. There are about four schools along Walker and people were speeding. There was no stop sign. And so we did a demonstration last, not this past December, but the December before in 18. And for 30 days, we tried everything that we'd ever seen in the Netherlands or in the US. So we had a roundabout, we had bump outs, we had every kind of traffic calming thing. And then we did surveys of the surrounding neighbors and said, which of these things over 30 days do you like? Which do you just hate? And so they they got to try it. So you saw us with trees in the middle of the street, makeshift lights, and you know they were really temporary. And then the residents chose what they wanted to remain. And we didn't leave that temporary stuff. We went after a grant that we received from the Kresge Foundation to, and, and along with the City of Memphis Division of Engineering, we're now putting in the permanent traffic calming elements that the neighbors chose uh, after their 30 day survey. And so our work is always driven by the people who live there, who who's most impacted by what we're doing. And so we're going to always go back to them uh, to say, does this work for you? Because you're going to be the biggest user of this activity. Well, that's that's absolutely beautiful. And it's it's all about, you know, again, it goes back to that word, you know, creating an inviting environment. It's an inclusive environment. And whether it's restoring and renewing that tree canopy so that you can get some relief from those hot summer days, uh, such an important um, aspect, especially when you're talking about the types of health disparities that you you have to address in these neighborhoods, it has to be inviting to be able to get out for a walk or get out for a bike ride. Yes. Yeah, such a such a huge part of that. Roshan, anything uh, we haven't addressed that you you wanted to talk about here today? I always want to say in this space, uh, whether we call it community economic development or whether we're activists and advocates around cycling or pedestrian, if we are focused on the environment, uh, because I think I'm a little of all of those things, that we always keep the people at the center of this work. It it centers us in our work, um, but it's why we're doing the work in the first place. It's always... It's not about us in isolation as advocates for some cause. It's about who's impacted in a negative way or who's impacted in a positive way in this work. And so whatever that work looks like for people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I think that's one of the reasons why I love that phrase, uh, people-oriented places or people-oriented development, because it, it's, it puts people right up front. It's it's saying, what is it that you need? What is it you want? What what's going to address the issues that you have? Yes. And I, I feel the same way. You know, we can talk about uh, workforce housing. We can talk about transit oriented development. Why can't we talk about people? Because it's people that need to ride the transit. It's the people who are working. 
And it's the people who are residing in these places and using uh, public amenities and parks. So we always need to think about people. Yeah, exactly. And one of my other favorite phrases is the concept of all ages and abilities. And that really encompasses everyone. It doesn't matter, you know, if you're a, a little, little one or if you are in your 80s or 90s, it needs to be something that's inviting um, across all ages and abilities. Uh, speak a little bit to uh, a topic you mentioned just briefly, and that was some parks and park development. Yeah. And so, I mean, we're excited about our pocket park, although we're activating some of the public parks and, and we're part of the city's efforts with 10 minute walk. So there there are efforts around the parks that exist in South Memphis and even our river park that we all share as Memphians, which is very close to us. We're part of the river park system. And one of our cycling trips is to the south end of those river parks is MLK Riverside Park, which for Memphians is historic because it was the first place that Blacks could use a public park. And that was owned by the city. And so that is so significant. It's a beautiful park that overlooks water, but it's underutilized. But we're next door, so we have 80 units, but there are thousands of families that live around some land that we've owned for 20 years because it was a part of this plan unit development initially. We didn't use it, so it's about an acre. And so though we had a series of uh, meetings over, I think, eight to 10 weeks. It wasn't just meetings sitting in our kitchen, although we like sitting in the kitchen because we eat and we play music and make it fun. We were out at the space. It was a rocky, it was dipping and diving. It had concrete, some grass, Everything you could think of was there. It didn't look like a park, but we were imagining what it could be. And so we brought out the music. So we brought out a DJ, which drew people. We had, uh, you know, people playing board games in in this, what was going to be a park. But first we didn't say it's a park. Tell us what you want it to be. It became a park because that's what they said it should be. And so there were little children. So you see little boys and then we have this picture that's great because you don't expect preteen or teenage boys to be out in this makeshift park doing yoga. And so we had a yoga instructor and they're all meditating. And it's like, that's the last thing you think about with a 13 year old boy. And, uh, and then you have us doing Tai Chi or shadow boxing. And so you have this group of people that look very different all over the place. Some people were canes, so they couldn't get on the mat with the yoga. They couldn't get that far down. And so they talk about abilities or they had a walker, but they could participate. So they could do some of the poses standing. And so when we had the meetings, I always made a point, you know, if a family brought a little child, for instance, uh, we had a five-year-old and his mother and father were like, oh, he can't, he doesn't have anything to say. I said, does he use parks? And they were like, yeah, he goes to the park and I asked him, I said, so what do you like to do when you go to the park? And he was like, I like to swing or I like to slide or I'm like, so he gets a yellow dot. He gets to put what amenities he likes in the park. We, he may not be able to read like us or articulate it, but he knows what he likes to do when he goes to the park or what he likes about that space or doesn't like about the space. And so he helps to define what that space looks like in the future because he'll be a user. And then our neighbors, I I keep mentioning people that are wheelchair bound or 
have uh, mobility issues, we had a, a parking lot around our development and we in a historic house. We have a lady who owns a house, bought a house from us years ago, who walks, comes across the street with her walker and she walks around probably 10 times to get her exercise every day. And we, she's a part of our walking group now and they all get Fitbits with the works uh, logo on it as a part. That's what they said they wanted. They wanted Fitbits and alkaline water. So we are responsible for providing them with that now. <laughs> but she walks. And so what, it, and she wasn't the only one doing that. So we have residents that they don't have another place to go that's nearby. So they're walking around because there's not a lot of car traffic. At, we come to work, but we know they're walking. So we're not going to go that way because it's their track, it's their walking trail. And so that said, hey, these people need a walking trail. <laughs> and so that's part of the part. The kids want to play, the, they want a walking trail. And then people kept saying, we just want some, a peaceful place. So that meant we need to leave the native trees so that we have a, a shade canopy. We need to put a bench. We need to have flowers or whatever they want there. So they had, and so there, there's a meditation area in the park. And so it, it really ended up defined by all types of people from the five-year-old to the eight-year-old and the walker. They will all be able to do something in that space that's fitting. It, it's, not if, it's not for the gym rats. So it's not for people who want to lift weights. And I mean, not that you can probably bring free weights and we have some and we can do yoga there, but it's not a basketball goal. So it's not just for young guys who want to shoot basketball. It's not a, a, a baseball diamond. So it's not for just athletes who want to play baseball. It has some elements for all types of users. And those people who like to shoot basketball are welcome. They just can't do the shooting basketball in this part because there's a park down the street dedicated to that. <laughs> so we'll suggest that they go to the basketball park. In this park, you can do something different. Yeah, good point. And it's and it's filling a need. It's filling a, a missing link that, you know, just wasn't there. This, you know, this was, as you said, this is what the people said they wanted and needed and had a vision for 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 being in that particular lot. So absolutely beautiful. Roshan, thank you so very much. It's been an absolute joy catching up with you. You too. It was great talking to you this morning. Thanks everyone for listening. I hope you found this episode truly inspiring. Be sure to click on the links in the show notes for more information on the works and some of the wonderful projects that they are involved with there in South Memphis. Hey, and I've got more content coming your way. In the queue, I've got Graham Hill, Curtis Rogers, Nicole DeBoom, Brian Jones, Kyle and Sarah, both who have ties to Memphis as well, Janelle Ness out of Laguna Beach, California, and Todd Littman with the Victoria Transport Policy Institute. Well, that's all for now. Please take care of yourself and each other. And until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers. <laughs>